maybe it was the first time where I got such a sense that um, science is historical. And this is something that is very close to my heart. Mm. Um, and, um, you, you know, it's really a human adventure. My view is that, you know, the digital age is just a moment, another moment in history. And that's very soon we're going to go back to something which is much more mixed. But I think we see that happening already. At the end of the day, the only thing that makes it possible for you to work in isolation is to believe in what you're working on. This is Brain Inspired. Hello, everyone. I'm Paul. On today's episode, I'm joined by Rodolf Sepulcre. So Rodolf is a control engineer and theorist at University of Cambridge. And today we discuss a range of topics around his work using control theory, specifically using a mix of positive and negative feedback control to model and build circuits that mimic the mixed digital and analog signals in our brains. So neurons, uh, they're special because they spike. They emit action potentials, right? They're digital. Uh, Much of neuroscience is devoted to counting spikes, doing statistics on spikes, and correlating spikes with behaviors. Uh, I counted spikes during most of my career. Spikes inspired the McCulloch-Pitts artificial neurons, which would output a one or a zero, binary, digital, which led to, well, you know, deep learning. But spiking isn't all neurons do. Their membranes have continuous analog voltage signals that are usually considered only in relation to whether a neuron will or won't spike. But that membrane voltage is sensitive to things like neuromodulators, ion concentrations, and so on. And to Rodolf, the mixed digital and analog signals of neurons uh, remind him of good old-fashioned control theory, and specifically a mixed feedback kind of control, mixed positive and negative feedback control. So he has been modeling single neurons as mixed feedback control systems, and began building up to small circuits of neurons that are further regulated by neuromodulation. In fact, much of his work has focused on modeling a small-ish circuit of neurons in lobsters and crabs called the stomatogastric ganglia, uh, or STG. So you may remember Eve Martyr from episode 130, who's been studying the STG for many years, and famously showed it can function within a normal range despite wide variations in environmental conditions. Despite individual neurons behaving quite differently, the system as a whole remains steady. It turns out Rodolf's uh, mixed feedback control approach may be a great way to understand how the STG does this. Anyway, we talk about all that. We discuss Rodolf's recent plunge into building these principles into neuromorphic chips, which he sees as the future and kind of the present. We discuss a little control theory history. Uh, It turns out the mixed feedback control has always been there, even though since the early days of cybernetics, we've tended to focus on negative feedback control. We talk about how, quote, if you wish to contribute original work, be prepared to face loneliness, and a handful of other topics as well. If you like this topic, you may want to visit or revisit uh, episode 119 with Henry Yin and his views on what cybernetics got wrong 
and his perspective on control theory in brains, uh, and or episode 130 with Eve Martyr, whom I mentioned before. If you want to dive deeper into Rodolph's work, go to the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 143. If you want to express support for the Brain Inspired podcast, go to braininspired.co and check out Patreon or my online course all about neuroAI. Uh, there's a free short video series that you can sign up for. I hope you're all doing well, staying in control, sometimes getting a little out of control, perhaps. All right, here's Rodolph. So, Rodolph, are, are you, do you consider yourself a control engineer? Do I have, if I asked you what you do, would you say you're a control engineer? I would be flattered. Because uh, many people think that I'm, oh, oh. Uh, I'm sort of a theoretician, but uh, I think that control is really an engineering science. Yeah. It's about building things. Yeah. Right. Okay. So that leads directly to my next question. Well, maybe first, what we, then I would ask what a control engineer is. How would you describe what a control engineer is? Right. That's a good question. I often joke that um, control is to engineering what philosophy is to humanities. So many people, I mean, on the surface, you might think it's pretty useless. But at the end of the day, <laughs> um, it is the foundation of many engineering developments, I would say. Why would you think that, I know it's a joke, but why would you think that it's useless? Does, does control, I know that the history of control has ups and downs right. within the engineering field, but it seems fairly central. It depends on, on, on the place. Um, but certainly... You know, if you speak to control theorists nowadays, many of them, I think, have a little bit of uh, difficulty placing themselves with respect to striving fields like machine learning, um, optimization. And, but I think that control is really great and very important, especially nowadays. Um, and, and perhaps the reason why some people might think it's useless it's because all the central concepts of control like for instance feedback are almost daily life concepts and so you wonder whether you really need a theory for mm -hmm. that and and then when you start doing the theory it all sounds very mathematical and it looks like there is a huge gap between you know the control problems that you start introducing in a basic course and then the mathematical theory that goes to address those questions but at the end of the day i think it's one of the few courses in an engineering uh, curriculum where you go the whole line the, the, the whole way from um i mean i would say you you see the value of abstraction that you see the value of abstraction, but to address mm -hmm. very concrete questions. I think that's perhaps what I like about control. Well, you mentioned machine learning. Is there no room for control theorists and machine learning at the moment? Of course, of course. But there is a temptation to become a machine learner, you know, and I think the challenge is to oh, wow. um, yeah. bring your expertise and as opposed to trying to, you know, to become someone different. <laughs> um, at the end of the day, I think we need all expertise um, and all expertises are valuable, but it's, there's always a balance between being sort of faithful to your expertise, which I think is where you can make a difference if you really, because this is your competitive advantage at the end of the day. Um, 
And of course, you want to use your expertise, but you also want to address global questions. And so that's why you want to sort of reach out, which is very good as well. But there is a balance to keep there. And is neurophysiology reaching out for you? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> where to start? <laughs> but um, Well, let me ask you this before, before we go on, because do I have it right that I think I read in one of your editorials that it was, was it James Gleek's uh, book that drew you into control in the first place? Can, can you just tell me Probably. that background story? So do you know about this mm. book? So this is, was a book of chaos and, and celestial mechanics. And, and I mean, the whole history of science starting with Newton and then finishing with Poincaré and, and dynamics in the 20th century. I found this absolutely fascinating Maybe it was the first time where I got such a sense that um, science is historical. And this is something that is very close to my heart. Mm. Um, and, um, you, you know, it's really a human adventure across centuries sometimes. And, and it's fascinating to see that at the same time, it, it, it progresses very slowly. But at the same time, it's very connected. And, 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 um, and I think that chaos was, the, you know, was the sort of the... Um, deep learning of today. It was very, it was a hype in the 80s. It was a, a very um, sort of novel um, way of, of linking the deterministic and the, the stochastic. And, and so it, it, it raised many hopes and many expectations. Um, so yeah, that, 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 that was all very attractive to me. Um, I've sort of moved away from um, dynamical systems, because I've realized over the years that dynamical systems was a sort of a, very often an obstacle to think of questions of neuroscience. And, and in my first steps in neuroscience, I was always told that, you know, the only way for an engineer to approach neuroscience was neurodynamics. And, uh, and I think that many people still nowadays in neuroscience have this view of the brain as a dynamical system. And I've uh, yeah, I think that this causes a lot of difficulties, at least to me, it has been, the journey has really been from dynamical systems to open systems, systems that interact with the environments. And, and this is why I think that the brain is so much about control. It's interesting that you say that. Maybe we should pause here for a moment and, and think about that more, because right now, at least from my perspective, there is... Uh, a resurgence of dynamical systems theory, at least uh, at the large population of neuron level. Maybe not so much at the single neuron, Hodgkin Huxley, uh, you know, mm -hmm. modeling a single neuron, but thinking of um, the, pop the activity of populations of neurons and how to tie those two cognitive processes. Dynamical systems theory seems to lend itself fairly well to think of these, high, you know, to take high dimensional activity, reduce the dimension of that activity and see what kind of landscapes and attractors uh, you can glean from that activity. Is that the kind of dy dynamical systems theory approach that you're, uh, that you have come to think is not as valuable? Yes, but of course, don't get me wrong. I mean, I think it's of course, uh, very good that um, people wish to acknowledge the dynamical nature of the brain and, and of neuronal behaviors. So it's, there is no question that the, you know, activity in the brain is very dynamical. I mean, uh, and so 
when we want to model the brain, we need dynamical models. However, there is a, a big and underappreciated distinction between closed and open dynamical systems. So mm. I think we are still very much influenced nowadays by you know, Newton's description of, of, of celestial mechanics. And so this is a, what we call a closed system. Uh, there is no interaction with an environment. It's all planets moving like clocks. And, and I think that this, this view is very difficult to transpose to the brain because I, th I think of the brain as really a machine that the main role of which is to interact with its environment. And when we, once you have a dynamical system that has sort of input and outputs, um, I think that the dynamical system has strong limitation and it's very important to acknowledge the open nature of those dynamical systems. And this is very much the field of control. So this is more or less moving from mm. science to engineering as well. And, and um, yeah, often, you know, wh when it comes to the methodology, you know, we have to acknowledge that there is a, the methodology of dynamical systems is at least four centuries old. So we have a lot of tools to talk about dynamical systems. Um, control theory is much more recent, and so we have much less tools to talk about open systems and interconnection of open systems. Yeah. Maybe we should just dive into con into the mixed feedback uh, signals that you've been working on, but maybe before that even, uh, just to really zoom out, how would you describe what is the <laughs> grand vision or what is the, the, the goal or project that you see yourself attacking? The short answer would be building a brain, <laughs> um, which is, of course, slightly provocative. But what <laughs> I think is important there is building versus understanding. I think I see a lot of people in neuroscience considering that the grand question is to understand the brain and to understand how the brain works. I think I've moved away from that question. Perhaps it's too hard for me, <laughs> but I think that. And perhaps this is my sort of engineering uh, background that is now speaking, but I find that mm -hmm. when you want to build a machine that you know, approaches the behavior of the brain, it's sort of very concrete. And, and it's also perhaps a sort of a bottom-up because you know, um, it's, gonna, yeah, it's gonna be a long way before we build a brain, a brain but, but I think we understand what, what I mean when I say I want to build a brain. I want to build a machine that is closer to the brain than the machines that we currently have. Why? Well, um, <laughs> again, that's very historical. Because if you go back to the early days of control, which we call cybernetics, um, which I think was a, a great time that is in a sense very similar to the current time. So we are talking about uh, the late 40s, right after the, the Second World War. And this is a time where there was a lot of enthusiasm to think about machines and animals in the same language and to try to really think of the brain as a machine in the first place and then as a second step sort of try to imitate that machine. But in fact, this, this moment in history was very short-lived because I think it was uh, stopped quite abruptly by Shannon's theory, 
which is 1948. So it's, it's really, we are already talking about a few years. And Shannon, I think, was very disruptive in saying, we need an information theory, and that theory needs to be discrete. And then a few years later, we had the digital computer. And from that time on, we have seen um, an increasing split between what we call analog technology and digital technology. And perhaps today we are sort of the very um, climax of that of that split in the sense that, you know, uh, students enter engineering thinking that analog is old and obsolete and, and useless and that digital is uh, is important and is uh, cool and, and is the future. And, and my view is that, you know, the digital uh, age is just a moment, another moment in history. And that's very soon we're going to go back to something which is much more mixed. But I think we see that happening already. Um, and I, I'm quite fascinated by this sort of return to um, the mixture of the analog and the digital, because I think I read it as a return to the cybernetics age, which was sort of ahead of its time. But I think now we can really make another try because we have 60 years of developments um, in neuroscience. So we understand the brain much better than in 1948. And also, of course, we have um, 60 years of developments of digital technology and of computational technology. How did you come to the... So did you look at a neural signal? I, I was going to make a joke and say, well, of course, the brain is digital because it communicates in spikes, right? But then, of course, when you look at the activity of a neuron, there's a voltage signal, which is a continuous analog signal, and then these somewhat discrete spikes, which are really continuous, but as you say, you can count. Did you uh, one day see a neurophysiological signal and think, oh, that's mixed feedback. That's how I could solve that. How did, how did you, maybe you could describe the mixed feedback approach and then, uh, and then give the background. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I, sh I, should, I should tell the anecdote because this is really a, a turning point in my, in my scientific life. And, and um, it it's happens more or less accidentally. And I certainly, as you said, did not think of spikes as mixed feedback signals <laughs> before that. So in, in 2008, I, I, I helped a neurophysiologist from my university to develop a computational model of a single neuron. He was studying the effect of specific calcium channels in dopamine neurons. So we shared a student for a year and we helped him developing the, the computational model. And then at the end of, the, of that project, the students came to me and said, could I start a PhD? And I told him, you know, I'm not interested in um, computer simulation. Um, but of course, this student was afraid of nothing. His name is Guillaume Drillon, and uh, he's a mountain biker. So he he's the sort of crazy student who <laughs> wants real challenges. <laughs> And um, and I told him, okay, the first thing that uh, I would want you to do if you want to do a PhD is to take this computational model and to simplify it to a second order differential equation so that we can draw a face portrait. <laughs> and he tried to do that. And we knew already quite a bit of neurodynamics by the time. So we were, we are trying to connect essentially what this computational model to the, the little neurodynamics that we knew. 
and it didn't work. He tried and kept trying, it didn't work. And we felt that there was something missing. And and so eventually we had a, a visiting student who was a sort of a, with a math background and wanted to do neuroscience. And I told him, okay, here is a five-dimensional model, a model with five differential equations. How do you reduce that model to two? And he came back to me a week later with a face portrait that was obviously wrong in the sense that it was different from any face portrait I had seen in neurodynamics. And then we start um, working, the three of us, on this phase project, and the rest is, is history. But very rapidly, I understood that the role of calcium channels in this neuron was a positive feedback, very much like the sodium channels of the Hodgkin-Huckley model, and that it was just in a slower time scale, and that neurons were organized with this big feedback motif that you can pile up at whatever, how many scales you wish, both in times and in... And it was sort of a flash that this provides a completely novel um, way of attacking multi-scale um, control and, and control across scales. And then it took many years to sort of connect that to, to history, to discover that, in fact, mixed feedback was very well known in the cybernetics time. So, in fact, the mixed feedback amplifier was the main object of study in the 30s and 40s in Bell Labs when people started using feedback to do long-distance communication. But I, I had never been taught that, so I had to sort of to rediscover that. But is that because cybernetics is all negative feedback, right? That, that's the, the story, is that cybernetics is all negative feedback. Is it not the story? That's what we have remembered from cybernetics. But before, um, in fact, at the time, the only way to build you know, um, switches was analog. And how do you build a switch in analog circuits by using positive feedback? In fact, historically, positive feedback was discovered before negative feedback. So all the, the electronic circuits early in the 20th century were positive feedback circuits to build you know, memory, what we would call memories today. And negative feedback was discovered much later. And it was a complete revolution by Black that to understand that negative feedback had a role and not just positive feedback. We have, I think, sort of forgot that early part of the history of feedback. And then we have remembered the role of negative feedback. And from the invention of the digital uh, computer, you know, positive feedback became obsolete and useless because we had a different way to sort of encode memory and we were, we were only needing negative feedback in the digital age. And so that's why we have this, nowadays, this uh, vision that negative feedback is analog and, and positive feedback is either in existence or just digital. And so you have modeled uh, neural activity at the single neuron level um, as a mixed positive and negative feedback signal. I wonder if it's worth just describing the overarching principles of of that model. Right. So because, of course, neither negative feedback nor positive feedback is something novel, right? Um, 
And I think most people have a sort of a, a rough idea of what negative feedback means. We think of our thermostat and we think of, you know, uh, creating a negative error to reduce the variations of a plant and to reduce sensitivity. So we think of our cruise control system for the car and we can think of many examples of sort of negative feedback. And then I think we, especially biologists, they are very familiar with the idea that positive feedback creates, you know, binary memory or digital um, um, automata. But I think that what I discovered as fundamental in the organization of neuronal behavior is the fact that once you have both, you can just balance positive and negative feedback and you can continuously sweep between those two. And in particular, there is a sort of a, a boundary between the world of negative feedback and positive feedback, where you go from one behavior to the other. And that boundary is a, what we call in mathematics a singularity. And this is, in fact, the place for ultrasensitivity, for spiking, and for thresholds. And I think it's really a fundamental organizing principles of um, neural circuits the fact that neuromodulators can continuously balance these two feedbacks and so use the same device, if you want to think of it in terms of a machine, to either have a memory or to have a processor and to have, a, in fact, a mix of both, uh, which I think is, is very cool. And it's something that, as engineers, we have lost in a technological world, which is nowadays divided into, on the one hand, a digital world, and on the other hand, an analog world. The way that you describe it, it seems, and I don't know if this is why in engineering, it maybe seems less appealing is because it seems like a, uh, a very delicate balance that needs to be walked uh, so that you don't, between the positive and negative feedback control signals, is that just difficult in engineering uh, uh, applications? Or is that why it might be a little less appealing? It's a very important question, question that you raised, because I haven't spoken about the most important feature of this mechanism, which is its robustness. You see, if you have one source of positive feedback, and that source is sort of, uh, think of it as being narrow range, so it, it, it provides positive feedback only in a very narrow range of amplitude and perhaps um, temporal scale. And then it is sort of surrounded by another source, which is a source of negative feedback, which is much more broad range. And, and now you sort of superpose the two. And I don't know whether it's, it's intuitive that it's like, you know, summing uh, a negative function that is very narrow to a positive function that is broad. The result will be the sort of convex function with a little dip, with a little bump. And the little bump mm. is created by the positive feedback. This picture is extremely mm. robust because even if you have a lot of uncertainty on both sources, as long as you have this principle of, you know, the, 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 the positive feedback being sort of narrow range, you will always have this spiking behavior existing. 
you cannot control exactly where and when, but it's going to always be there. And that's, I think, fundamental to um, design of biological system because it's a it's a principle it's a design principle under uncertainty and i think that's the the most important meeting point between the brain or even biology in more general and mm. control i think of control as a design discipline under uncertainty since you mentioned robust and started making the connection with biology i suppose it might be the right time to bring up eve martyr's name and how you, um, I, I know that you're largely inspired by her work on the stomatogastric ganglion of the lobster and, and crabs. And, and maybe you can just kind of bring that in and talk about, did you already have these principles that we've been discussing in mind? And then you saw her work and then that was another uh, aha moment. Or how did you come to be interested and appreciate the STG and, and her work in that right. system? Uh, so I've had her on the podcast and and you know famously that system is robust and can operate under different temperature ranges and still under different regimes come out with a functioning central pattern generator oscillatory system that can still function in the crab and likewise uh that same structure can give rise to different functions depending on neuromodulators it's being bathed in etc right so very soon after this um anecdote that i've been um telling you about earlier we you know we we said oh we feel that this is very important we should you know go to neuroscience meeting and talk about it so we sent an abstract to um, the neuroscience meeting and we went there you know the biggest conference in control is about three thousand people and then i there i am at san diego <laughs> thirty thousand people um where do you start um, <laughs> yeah and then um, one uh, at the time postdocs who then became my colleague Tim O'Leary came to our poster, and he was he had been working in in Eve's mother's labs for um, three or four years at the time, and he told us this is what we need, and that was the start of of uh, discovering Eve Mother's work. And very rapidly, I found that I, I had found my home in neuroscience. That to me, neuromodulation. Oh, wait, let me interrupt is you. Is the control systems of the brain? Yes. Ah, okay. Well, I'm just curious. At that, you know, th so you're talking about SFN, which is the Society for Sur for Neuro Society for Neuroscience, the largest neuroscience conference. How well? What year was that approximately? And how well trafficked was your poster? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was 2012, if I'm not wrong, and then we went a couple of times, okay. maybe 2013, and and um, and then I, you know, I visited Eve Mother's lab, then Guillaume Drion spent a year, then then eventually Tim O'Leary took a faculty position in Cambridge. So since then, we have sort of become much closer to each other, and 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 I think that yeah, Eve Mother's work is is really. I find many similarities between also the position of neuromodulation in the world of neuroscience and the position of control in the world of engineering. Mm. You know, I think her work is nowadays recognized as sort of groundbreaking and extremely fundamental. But I also know that for many, many years, she worked 
pretty much in isolation, um, being told that she was working on something obsolete and from the past. So I, I've read this, <clears throat> excuse me, I read this quote from you since you said that about Eve. I don't remember the source, but you wrote, if you wish to contribute original work, be prepared to face loneliness, <laughs> but never stop asking and listening. So that's certainly <laughs> my experience in, in um, over the last 10 years. Um, and that's why I was saying that it has been a sort of a turning point in my career, because before that, you know, um, when I submitted a paper, I knew it was always going to be accepted. Uh, I, ex I mean, I, it was it was more like a business oh. <laughs> work. And then starting in 2009, I've got uh, papers and papers and papers rejected. And it has really been a very hard uh, journey. Not just, I wouldn't say it that much for myself because I was sort of established by then. But I'm thinking more about my PhD students and postdocs who were really in the wilds and, and um and I think this is inevitable. Um, it was a, a, a long journey, I think, mostly. And, I, you know, when I look back at those reviews and at those uh, hard times, um, I, I don't blame anyone. I think if, if there is anyone to blame, it was us. Um, we were using a language. I mean, we were not communicating. We were essentially expressing things in our own language, but not in language that allowed communication. And we wanted to reach out in communities, and we didn't really speak the language of those communities. And so that has been a sort of the reason why it mm -hmm. took a long time. I would say that this uh, difficult time ended up with um, being invited at Telluride and, and discovering neuromorphic engineering in 2018. I had never heard of Cavill Meat until 2018. And going to that conference was um, sort of a shock because I suddenly felt like all the work we had been doing for the last, for the, the, the 10 preceding years was oh. essentially an answer oh. to the question raised there. And at the same wow. time, it felt like going back home. Suddenly I was speaking to engineers I was speaking to people who understood my language, and and since then things have been easy. I would say. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> no more loneliness. What 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 happened? Is that the is that when you started modeling the um, the crab stomach uh, stomatogastric ganglion system, or was that a couple years later? Because I know. So we'll go down. We'll talk more about neuro neuromorphics and that and your interest in in those. And and you have been for a few years at least modeling um, parts of the stomatogastric ganglion. Was that the was there a challenge in that conference or how did that begin? No, that well that began as soon as we as we met uh, Eve's group and and that we were sort of given mm -hmm. with a. A relatively small network, but we were told that this network was nevertheless very rich. And so, Eve Marders tells that you know the somato, the STG has about thirty neurons, but in fact, you can sort of have a cartoon model with about five neurons, and that's you know the size of circuits that we are ready to jump in, uh, coming out of our cellular work. Okay, so the STG was very instrumental to 
help us understanding how you move from the cellular level to the circuit level and whether there is any chance to do that in a sort of a bottom-up fashion. Because I think many people think that you know, cellular work is sort of useless if you are interested in brain functions. Yeah. And so there is this big split of communities. And so, of course, it's very questionable whether doing work at the cellular level has any chance to have an impact at the circuit or, or functional level. But that was our interest from the start. Um, because my interest from the mm. very start was to discover a principle of what I call control across scales, which I think is the big, big open question nowadays. See, uh, even in neuroscience, but not in only neuroscience, but certainly in neuroscience, if you go to the SFN meeting, you see this very layered uh, conference where you know some communities study the cellular level, some communities study the animal level, and then all the... But, but the grand challenge, of course, seems to be that how you how you go from one level to the other and how, and how those and whether it's hard to imagine that uh, a community would have worked for now more than 70 years on the cellular level if it was totally um, useless but at the same time it's still i think very much an open question on how the cellular level sort of governs the organization of higher level and and as a control engineer this is a very central question for me so let's talk about across scales for a moment because it's it's fairly intuitive to think at a single neuron or you know thinking about the molecules the receptors and that neurons need for homeostasis and to remain within a range to stay alive and then it and then you can kind of it's still intuitive to build it up and think well these are now communicating with each other but then you start getting into higher let's say, cognitive functions, right? It seems harder to connect that in a control story. Where is the, uh, that internal reference signal that um, is being controlled for, right? Does that make sense? That, uh, do you yes. think of higher cognitive functions as control also? Definitely. But probably I think that way because I don't know much about what you mean by higher cognitive level. <laughs> And so I'm sort no one of, does um, though, but no one does. <laughs> I'm sort of very naive in, in, in having in lacking the knowledge of, of neuroscience. <clears throat> and and um, but at the same time, um, I've been continuously amazed by how much you know I, we in the first year we spent a lot of time, um, most of our time, I would say, explaining how a single cell can sort of be modulated between a spiking state and a bursting state. And of course, it was very difficult to make any point out of that because everyone was telling us, I mean, this has been studied 40 years ago. What, what are you, what, what do you want to do? <laughs> and I, yeah, I will not enter too, 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 too many details because it would, it would get technical. But then, um, Already, if you go from the single cell to um, an STG, so an STG is essentially an example of what neuroscientists call central pattern generators. You, you must generate um, rhythm, and the STG generates a slow rhythm with 
essentially two neurons and another faster rhythm with another two neurons. But how you generate a rate out of a single cell has been studied for a century. It's the so-called half-center oscillator model. You just attach two cells to each other with inhibitory coupling. And you create a sort of antiphase clock in a very natural way. Now, discovering the fact that cellular bursting was the control mechanism of that very simple rhythm was already, I think, a big, big step forward for us. Because it has always been a difficulty for me when I studied the literature on central pattern generators to know whether you should think of central pattern generators as autonomous clocks or as you know circuits that interact with the environment. And of course, we know that it's a mix of both. But many people have a view of either inhibitory networks as being sort of very autonomous and, and um, not requiring any signal from the environment. And then you see other people who sort of reject that idea saying, no, 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 um, that doesn't make sense. Any cell must interact with the environment, which is true. You see, this balance, in fact, is very much, again, a manifestation of the balance between positive feedback and negative feedback, but at, already at a higher scale. There is not much cognition, perhaps, going on in a CPG, but it's already uh, a higher level than a single cell level. And in fact, we see nowadays that, in fact, um, CPGs are all over the brain in the sense that inhibitory networks play a role to generate red in many, many areas of the brain. And then if you go even higher up, you find that this um, transition of a single cell between spiking and bursting, for instance, has been described to play an important role in sleep and in sort of disconnecting mm -hmm. the thalamus um, from sensory mode and sort of creating a sort of a gate between the cortex and the sensory um, layers. And again, you find that you see the same balance between inhibition and excitation as something that you know can regulate how much you want the behavior to be endogenous and sort of disconnected from the world versus you want the, um, the network or the circuits to be connected to the world. And nowadays, there is still a lot of, it's a very active research area in neuroscience and in neuromodulation. And people talk about brain states. And brain states are sort of cover all the, the, the levels, all the way from, you know, the whole brain, which is whether you sleep or whether you are awake, to very small circuits that can be sort of temporarily disconnected or connected. Now, this is just an example, and it, it, it's one of the few areas that I have studied a little bit, I would say, neuroscience. But this gives me hope that, you know, this bottom-up approach can go a long way. And I don't know how much it can cover cognitive areas, but certainly it is enough if you ask the engineering question of using an event-based camera to create something like attentive vision. How can you make a camera asleep or awake? I think that, you know, already 
this is sort of a very engineering question, which, by the way, is, it's a very important question nowadays in engineering. And I think you can directly connect that mm. question to what I've been talking about and that have been studied in neuroscience for now 50 or 60 years. So how far have you taken the, taken the neuromorphic uh, approach to the STG? Okay, so uh, again, I mean, we, we started neuromorphic quite recently, and, and I, I have very little expertise in circuit design. And, and, um, but I found in Cambridge, one of two students sort of brave enough to design analog circuits. You have to imagine that nowadays for a student, it, it requires a lot of courage to <laughs> dig into an analog circuit design because <laughs> why would you study analog? Anyway, uh, we have built, uh, and uh, students of mine have built first, what I would say the first um, neuromodulable uh, neuromorphic circuit. So very elementary circuits that can be controlled between spiking and bursting between you know, on and off discrete states. It's it's uh, tremendously encouraging to see that it works and that to see that it works in the presence of uncertainty. So I think my, my next five years or even 10 years will entirely be in that area because now we really are at the stage where we can try to design and, and, and build circuits of growing size. And, and the STG will be one example of them, uh, where we're going to start assembling those motifs to create circuits of higher dimension. And, and, and of course, um, electronics is, is a very good area to scale up because you can very easily build chips with several thousands of neurons of the type of neuron that we have built um, just on a PC board with two or three. So as you build up, and even as you're modeling, you know, even your mixed fe feedback signal, the way that you model a, a neuron's membrane, right, to um, simulate the, the signals coming from a neuron. So a real neuron has dozens of receptors, ion channels, etc. And you are you have to abstract away from that. And like you were saying two earlier, if you can get <laughs> two equations, uh, right. does it do you feel as you scale up that you're going to continue to need to abstract things out or do you have any uh, plans or desire to build in finer detail of those ionic currents or is that just, are we at the right level of abstraction in your opinion to, but because it's, it functions as a mixed signal feedback and then you can change the motifs with the neuromodulation principles. Right. Um, okay, maybe there are two aspects uh, on, on the question. One aspect is if we look at the complexity of these neuromodulators and, and receptors and ion channels, and to what extent do we want to replicate that in a circuit? And, and mm -hmm. my view is that there is a huge amount of redundancy in those circuits, um, which makes them incredibly adaptive and, and, you know, reconfigurable and, and evolutionary and so on. And of course, that's perhaps the, the biggest challenge if we want to build machines that have the same level of sort of evolutionary uh, capabilities. Well, they're also continuously being turned over. Turned over in, in what sense? What do you mean by that? They're continuously uh, moving on the membrane, each ion channel, and then that ion channel dies. A new oh, yes. synthesize. 
you know, so there's there's continuous sure. turnover in the system Absolutely. as well. So, so that has a, I think, a pretty good translation in Carver Meets um, electronic elements that you use these um, transconductance transistors that are voltage gated, and and you can really think of the the voltage as a as a way to modulate their maximal conductance, which is very much like what a neuromodulator does by you know modulating the expression of a channel. Essentially, you you create more conductance or less conductance. So there is quite a good match between those two principles, and so that I think we can imitate, but of course um, at, in a much simpler mm. way, right? And of course, um, the way I think of uh, how you control a spiking neuron, which would be a sort of the simplest control system, is that in principle, if you want to control a spike, you only need one conductance for the positive feedback and one conductance for the negative feedback. So you only need two parameters and you balance the two parameters. But in fact, the way a neuron does it, it uses perhaps hundreds of parameters to control the positive feedback and another hundreds <laughs> of parameters. So why so much redundancy? Because then you can think that, you know, there are many, many different ways you can modulate, let's say, the positive or the negative conductance. And uh, you can sort of uh, think of uh, attaching um, of each receptor as being another sensor for the neuron. And so a single neuron can sort of pay attention to a diversity of signals in the environment. But at the end of the day, the control task of all these channels and receptors has a certain level of simplicity. It just has to balance this positive and negative feedback, but it just can do it in many, many different ways. That's really something I learned from Eve Mother's work. You were talking about redundancy, but then earlier, you know, we were talking about robustness and how that's an important principle. Is it possible that, you know, these hundreds of different uh, ion channels and ways uh, that the neuron can behave is because it this allows it to be both robust, but also be used for multiple different cognitive functions, multiple different purposes in different operating regimes. Yeah, uh, that that's the way I think about it. And this is, I think, where the work of Eve Mother is so important. Because I would say that if you think of the STG as a control system, the task of that control system is pretty simple. It just has to articulate two rates with each other. But it is done with tons of neuromodulators and tons of receptors. And this is what is creating the mm -hmm. complexity. So I, I, sometimes I say that I think of neural circuits as very simple control systems with very complex controller, which is so, almost the opposite of what we do in engineering, where you know we use always the same type of PID controller, but then we put many, many, many of them and to control a very complex system. Um, but at some point that gets wasteful, right? Well, wasteful, um, we have to be careful when we use that word. <laughs> um, because, I mean, our experience of animals is that they're not wasteful at all. Um, and so, but I think that, I think of this redundancy as being accumulated over evolution. And so, the way I think of building machines that sort of mimic those behaviors would, those machines, at least initially, would be much, much simpler. 
but perhaps over time, you know, you add a, another fun. It's a little bit like software, <laughs> the way softwares are developed nowadays. You you add you keep mm. adding functions, and at the end of the day, they they look pretty wasteful. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Rodolphe, let me. I'm going to play you this question from a, a listener because I want to make sure I get it in before the end, and it it might be the right time to to play it, and might lead to other. Uh, topics here. So here's the question from Matt. Hi, Professor Supplicker. Since you and your colleagues work on mixed feedback control has made progress on the issues of component variability and noise fragility, what do you see as the next big technical barrier standing in the way of mainstream adoption of neuromorphic methods, if any? Or is it more a matter of getting the right people in industry interested? Thank you. That's a tough question. <laughs> uh, talking about the future, it's always difficult. My experience is that technology, as very often, is way ahead of us. And when I say us, I mean researchers. So I think that the theory of neuromorphic design is lacking behind the technology of neuromorphic design. Um, by a very mm. significant margin. Nowadays, there is a huge interest from the industry for neuromorphic. Intel is building uh, neuromorphic chips, and 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 then the event-based camera was commercialized just a few years ago. But it's, I think, it's a complete revolution in the computer vision um, industry and community. But the theory lags behind. We have why. Because what we have on the table, what we learn as students is a sort of a double set of tools. And you pick your digital tool or your analog tools from the two different bags. And, and you do that at every level in every discipline. And at least my understanding of neuromorphic is that it's precisely the, the mixture of the two that's, that is fundamental to neuromorphic. And the, the truth is that we don't have a theory for that. We, we, don't, we don't know how to handle spikes. So we, some people handle spikes in a statistical way. Some people say that spikes are irrelevant. Some people say that each single spikes is hugely important. But I mean, this diversity of uh, almost opinions, I would say, is just telling us that we don't have a good theory to handle um, spiking information technology at the moment. What role do you think the modern successes of rate-based modeled, rate-based deep learning models has played or continues to play in that divide? I mean, a lot of people, even in neuroscience, look at the success of these rate-based models, sometimes that are just feed forward, you know, and and really abstract away a lot, right? Going back from McCulloch Pitts, you know, the binary neuron to now these rate-based um, approaches and they can do so much. So, right, like you just said, we don't need spikes. They're irrelevant. Um, uh, you know, how do you view that in terms, you know, just personally, but also then in terms of um, related to Matt's question, getting people excited about neuromorphics? Well, my experience is that a lot of people are getting very excited about neuromorphics um, these days. Um, but it was not certainly not the case 10 years ago. And, and so 
And that was the time where I was digging into spiking. And so I suddenly asked myself that question very often. Uh, I remember reading a famous paper, I think, Requiem for the Spike, and <laughs> thinking that perhaps <laughs> I was working on something completely irrelevant. But, um, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> but um, you know, I think it's phenomenal what has been achieved based on Maculoch Pitt's ideas. You know, you use so little of what we know for, of the brain, and then you build 60 years of technology that is still developing. At, and, and I mean, who could have predicted what has happened in digital technology in the 60s? It, 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 it's just phenomenal. At the same time, I think that an increasing number of people think that, you know, digital technology has very, very strong limitations. And, and probably Carver Mead was visionary in sort of foreseeing that 30 years before the others. And perhaps it's, and probably it's because he was at the very forefront of uh, computer technology. And, and so he, I think he became, because he was an expert in, in, in CMOS uh, technology, he, I think he perceived before others that this was hugely inefficient. Um, and sooner or later, we would be hit by this inefficiency. And that's what we see now. Suddenly, you know, the carbon footprint of, of digital makes news and, and, and he's really becoming a huge problem. And that's why there is such a, an interest in the industry. And, and so I'm, I'm not worried about, you know, the potential of um, neuromorphic. Um, I'm more worried about um, the pace of development of the theory. It's very slow. <laughs> um, Partly because, you know, most of people work, I mean, this is a bandwagon effect. So nowadays it's, you know, far easier to get a job and just to develop another deep neural yeah. network. Um, and, and I don't think there is much you can do about this phenomenon. It's, it's, uh, it's a soci sociological phenomenon that will always exist. Um, but if we, let's say we could siphon from a black hole some energy portal and so we had nearly infinite power consumption ability and then didn't have to worry about wasting the power, right? Would it matter? Could we just scale up with what we have? Mm. And, and of course, we could give the energy back to the black hole. So it wouldn't increase uh, global warming anymore, et cetera. Right. It wouldn't, wouldn't hurt the carbon footprint. No, but I uh, then would we still be building neuromorphics and, and worried about... Uh, the power consumption? Is there something else besides power efficiency of that neuromorphic computing can add? Or okay, what's that? So very good point. In, in, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about energy just because it's in the news currently. And, and that's the argument of companies yep. like Intel. But energy efficiency has never been my interest in, in neuromorphic. Um, but I've very long been fascinated by um, the power of uh, animal vision in selecting the right sort of information um, mm. with a speed and a resolution that will never be achieved by any um, digital camera. So I think that when we, you know, when you study for five minutes, the difference between a digital camera and uh, event-based camera, you immediately realize that 
there is nothing more stupid than a digital camera. And that's uh, <laughs> storing uh, streams of uh, millions of pixels it, for nothing most of the time and then piling up this in, in huge servers is, I think, uh, a century from now, we will laugh about that in the same way as we laugh about, you know, the way people were using um, um, mechanical power at, at the end of the 19th century. And, and um, so th there is no question that the way we use digital technology today will sound extremely obsolete, um, maybe already 20 years from now, and not just for energy. Um, efficiency. It, it's it's much more than that. Think about robots, uh, soft robots um, that needs to grasp anything with a sort of sense of touch. We are nowhere in designing such robots. Nowhere. And I think we will never get anywhere as long as we stick to digital technology. Likewise for acoustic sensing, likewise for digital uh, visual sensing, all the sensing that we see in the animal world. How long will it take for the theory to catch up? I think it's speeding up. Um, you know, I, I, I see that, I mean, I, I can at least speak for my work that um, if I look over the, ten, the, the, the past 10 years, I think the pace has been extremely slow because it has been a lot of deconstruction and a lot of reconstruction and a lot. But I'm quite optimistic that that, that the developments will be quite fast in the, in the next ten years. And I think that many people express the same in different areas. And there is a sense, I think, growing up that um, we are about uh, sort of a turning point in the way we understand the brain in the sense of designing machines. So we are very close to, you know, designing ma machines in a very novel way. And I think that perhaps the event-based camera is the best current um, example of that. So from your engineering perspective, I, I know you have your fingers dipped in a lot of different areas. Uh, you have a view on neuroscience. And I know earlier you said that you don't understand enough about enough neuroscience to speak about higher cognitive functions, etc. But uh, and I know that you're aware of the modern deep learning successes. And there's this large push in neuroscience these days to use those deep learning models to help us understand and control, actually, if you look at Jim DiCarlo and Dan Yeaman's labs, um, I know that you're you, you think of control as understanding um, to use those deep learning models as a window into how our brains function. Does this look um, right to you? Does this look silly to you? Does this? Do you think like uh, neuromorphics in 100 years, we're going to look back and think that the whole deep learning quote-unquote revolution that is continuing to scale, um, that's by itself. Sorry, those are I'm conflating two things, using deep learning to understand brains and deep learning itself continuing to scale. Um, do, anyway, let's stick with the neuroscience deep learning comparison. Do, do you think that's a useful way to model what's happening in brains or do we need to use things like you know the mixed feedback signal which is a seems like an entirely different beast i'm not sure i mean using deep learning to advance neuroscience doesn't speak to me um but using deep learning for whatever um 
scientific question doesn't speak to me. Um, that doesn't mean that it's silly. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it just doesn't speak to me. And and I think we have to be very careful about the timescales of these hypes. You know, deep learning started, let's say, 2012. So this is just 10 years ago. And I might be wrong, but I think that deep learning will be very short-lived. Um, I, I see nothing fundamental in deep learning. And I think that many researchers in machine learning would agree with that. Don't take me wrong. I, it, it is creating a, you know, a huge advance in the industry and in the technology. So it's, it is a technological advance, perhaps a technological revolution. I don't think so. But it's certainly not um, a revolution in science. And, and um, I think that it is very tempting, especially if you don't work in machine learning, but if you use machine learning, if you use deep learning, it's very tempting to think of it as a sort of a black box that is doing miracles. But that, that won't last. And mm -hmm. in fact, we have seen that in previous uh, sort of winters and, and summers of machine learning, you know, whenever you create big expectations, the deception comes next. And so I think we are very close to that stage. Where, where do you see us in neuroscience right now? <laughs> I know it's an unfair question. You know, I, I, I know too little about neuroscience to, to say anything uh, relevant about neuroscience. Um, I, I see neuroscience as the most important uh, scientific field of, of uh, in science today. Um, and so no question that this is going to be the, the big science of the 21st century. I think that progress has been very slow initially and that it is speeding up. Um, and what can I say beyond that? Maybe as an anecdote, I, I, I could mention um, a book that I read last summer um, by Max uh, Sorens called The Hidden Spring. So this is a book about consciousness. Oh yeah, uh, Mark, Mark Solms. Mark yeah. Solms. So this is a book about consciousness. Yeah. And I usually when I read articles uh, about consciousness, I stop after two paragraphs. Um, <laughs> but I read this book um, in and out. And what I found really fascinating in that book is that I understood it all with the very little background that I have in neuroscience. And I really read it as a control textbook. To me, Mark Song is describing mm. the brain as a control system. And now we are talking about, you know, the perhaps the biggest or, or most grand problem of neuroscience. And this, again, this speaks to me. The fact that I think there is a convergence of... of and so what I especially liked in that book is that I think Mark Solms, at the end of the day, he's demystifying the question of consciousness. And um, and he's using his background in neurology, his background as a psychiatrist. Uh, he's making a, a, a huge number of reference to Freud. And yeah, I think this is a very important time that the fact that now we start People feel, you know, a load to go back to the roots, a load to 
contemplate the developments of neuroscience and go back to the early questions. I think it's a very positive sign that there has been a huge um, development of the field and that um, the field is entering an area where perhaps progress will be less disorganized and, and less fragmental and, and more uh, cohesive. So I just recently had Karina Curto on the podcast and um, her, you probably don't know her name, but she is an ex-physicist and I, I was making a connection between her work and yours because she works on these um, models. They're called linear threshold networks and they are essentially graph models where each node is an excitatory unit. And then there's this background inhib inhibition yeah. that follows kind of two rules yeah. that's just bathing the whole uh, network. And she's using that to uh, be able to make rules. They're, they're mathematically tractable models so that uh, she can look at the um, the structure of the model and then predict the dynamics that are coming out of it. And from building up these models, you know, into five, 10 units, et cetera, then she can make these um, dynamic attractors that that create sequences of um, numbers and et cetera. Uh, see, like she models a horse galloping in sequences and all sorts of different dynamical attractors. And the goal is to be able to say what kind of uh, dynamical structures will result in a uh, network structure. That's sort of beside the point. And so I, 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 one question is I'm, I'm still trying to connect that with the mixed feedback signal approach. And there, there's some some fruitful uh, project there to be had. But the other that the reason I thought of her just now is because thinking about moving forward in neuroscience, as you say, it was slow progress, but it seems more uh, concerted. I I mentioned that she is, has a physics background because uh, the physicists seem to still be coming in droves into neuroscience. But the, the background of neuroscience is a bunch of engineers also. And I don't know if that has uh, just been a steady march. Do you think neuroscience needs more engineers, needs more physicists, needs more molecular biologists? We all know that's not true. <laughs> what, what, what do you think? Is it lacking an engineering approach? Is the engineering approach going to help advance the needle? I, I think neuroscience needs all backgrounds and um, certainly needs physicists as well as it needs engineers. Um, uh, I cannot resist telling another anecdote that it's back, I think, 2009 or very early in my journey in neuroscience. I spoke to a computational neuroscientist and he told me, you know, there is only one good background if you want to do computational neuroscience, it's physics. Uh-oh. So he was sort of kicking me out of the room. Uh, yeah. And uh, I've seen a, a lot of... That's a very physicist thing to say, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, he had, a, he had a background in physics, indeed. Uh, <laughs> of course. Yeah. But um, I've seen a lot of that, I would say. And, and I would say that still nowadays in com computational neuroscience, it's probably dominated by physicists. And there is nothing wrong about it. Um, except perhaps that it has created a vision of the brain that is very similar to, you know, we, we spoke about um, the vision of James Gleick of, of celestial mechanics. So I still sometimes amazed to see some people thinking of the brain as a sort of gigantic um, universe where 
things rotate like planets and and mm. uh, and that creates whatever it creates um perhaps engineers are useful to complement that view with a, a a view that is much much more close to earth and 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 i think that my competitive advantage as an engineer in that story i think is the design element so the word that you just mentioned sounds extremely interesting and in fact resonates with i think some of the things that we do indeed but my first question to that physicist would be how would you build a circuit that does that and i think that mm. so this is a second question and it is the what we call in control the realization question you know you you build an abstract um model of something and then you ask a question how do i translate this mathematical model or this simulation model into a machine into a physical machine and i find that this realization question is is not very often present in neuroscience and the result of that is a gap you see i know that someone like eve mother has very little communication with computational neuroscientists and that I have perceived that gap very often between computational neuroscience and experimental neuroscience. So, yes, I think that we see, an and I think we need more engineers in neuroscience, and I think that this will happen because of neuromorphic engineering on one hand, but also because of um, medical neuroscience. Oh. Inevitably, we will see a move from science to medicine. And whenever we see in biology a move from science to medicine, we see the analog move from physics to engineering. Because medical doctors, you know, at the end of the uh -huh. day, they don't really ask whether they understand the brain. They just want to heal a dysfunctioning uh, brain. And in that sense, they are very close to engineers who want to build things. And, and I think that a lot of progress in neuroscience I'm sure will come from brain machine interfaces, will come from um, deep brain stimulation uh, to, to cure diseases. And, and, and so I, I'm quite optimistic about the progress of neuroscience being driven by medicine more and more rather than by science only. I don't want to get you in trouble, but what about philosophy? Is there a role for philosophy? Well, of course, you. it's like asking a physicist if he thinks that physics is important. Um, I have a little <laughs> bit of background in philosophy, and, and I think that yeah. um, philosophers do have a role um, in neuroscience. In fact, a very important one. Maybe not so much to develop theories of consciousness, but um, to bring more epistemology in neuroscience. I think that um, mm. there is a lot of confusion um, in neuroscience between the sub-communities and that sort of develop their own languages and then have difficulties to speak to each other. And I think that's the sign of a field that is developing, but, but, but at some point, if you want to put a little bit of order <laughs> and structure in, in that mess, I think philosophy is very useful. And, and, and also another uh, I think value of philosophy is to move people away from their methodologies, which in neuroscience could be also 
um, you know, experimental devices and move them back to the questions and in particular, the sort of the core questions. Um, and so I think that philosophers have always had that role in science. And it is something that is suddenly, suddenly me a little bit these days that sometimes you feel like philosophy is no longer regarded as a science and that there is this um, mm. we we tend to think that science is only about technology and that um, humanities are not really in the same um, playground i i disagree very strongly with that view i think that um, um, science is a human adventure and that um, humanities have a as an important role as as um, as technical science and and, um, and certainly that's the case for the brain and you know we haven't been talking about all the ethical questions and and yeah i think there is a place for philosophy in many many areas of neuroscience all right i've kept you long enough but i i want to end on this perhaps unless you have other things that you would like to discuss but you know, we we've talked about sort of the history of feedback and how it began with positive and mixed, and then negative feedback came to dominate with cybernetics, and then cybernetics went away. So there are these kind of fads, um, and we've talked about how you think that the deep learning of these days is going to be fairly short lived. And we discussed how you know I read that quote. I'm going to read it again. The quote from you: If you wish to contribute original work, be prepared to face loneliness. But the the question is. How do you know you are working on the right thing? Is it just that you are submitting manuscripts and they're getting rejected? <laughs> or yeah, and, and then how long can you continue on that path? Because they're not all the right paths. And they're not all the right subject areas to study to answer certain questions, right? Engineering isn't applicable to certain questions. So how do you know that you're doing it the right way? Like, yeah, I think a lot of people struggle with this. I struggled with this with this question throughout my career. Definitely, um, I think in in that same interview that you are quoting, I, I advise to always think of um, our profession as a privilege. I feel very privileged, you know, to um, be paid to do what I'm doing. A little bit like artists who are paid for what they are doing. Um, I think it's it's a, it's a very luxury um, position, but of course this this sort of role of of research and academia is very much challenged nowadays um, because you know we like to think more and more of academic people as contributing to you know the benefit of society and they have to do their job <laughs> and um, and so there is this sort of a business-like model of academia that um, many people resent and especially i would say um, young people um, i've i've often had conversation with postdocs telling me you know science is no longer what it used to be i would never have the freedom that you have had i'm forced to do on this and this and i have no choice um, I think there is always a balance. Um, and I think of the academic profession as a sort of a, something in between a, a, a profession and, and art. But sometimes I feel a little bit like of an, uh, part of my job is the job of an artist. 
um, not my entire job. Um, so an, an artist is allowed to do wrong things. An artist is allowed to, to work on things that, you know, will never be of interest to anyone. And I think that academics should be allowed to work on things that will never have any impact. Um, but of course, you know, if you manage a department you and you hire people, you you also want to make sure that those people bring some money. And, and so it, we are not just living in a purely artistic world. Um, and it is a, diff a balance that is very difficult to maintain. Um, I would also say that I was describing earlier that, you know, I think that the first part of my career has been closer to a profession and the second part of my career has been closer to um, an artistic life. And certainly moving to Cambridge has mm -hmm. given me a freedom that I, I don't know how many places still um, give that freedom. But maybe this is something that one can develop over time. And I always tell my postdocs and, you know, perhaps there is a way, there is a path to what you want to do. And perhaps you have to sort of accept that um, you will not immediately be given the, the freedom of perhaps working on something totally useless. <laughs> um, but perhaps you can always try to push things in that direction. And I think that in my case, it certainly has been a very slow uh, journey. And, and, and of course, I've been lucky in, in, in many ways because you also depend on opportunities and, and on, on the, so you don't control everything. In, in, but I think you can always try to push the path in the direction of things in which you believe. Because at the end of the day, the only thing that makes it possible for you to work in isolation is to believe in what you're working on. And, and we have to be careful with that sort of faith. <laughs> um, it can be very dangerous. So uh, I think it's good to believe in something, but it's very important that to keep interacting with others so that they can always have a chance to tell you that you are a fool. <laughs> do, you, do you agree with like the postdocs you were talking about that the perhaps the on average, the struggle uh, along that path is of greater proportion than it used to be? I don't know. It's very hard for me to compare um, the current situation to the situation 40 years ago. I think it was hard at the time. It is hard today. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it has always been hard. Maybe <laughs> what perhaps... We, we, yeah, perhaps there is a tendency to think that academia should be a, a mass thing. I mean, that, that everyone should have the chance to become an academic. And yeah, um, I don't know. I, I, I completely acknowledge that it is very difficult uh, nowadays to um, navigate between the business demands and, and the artistic um, hopes. But I think that this is true of every profession. At the end of the day, this is true of every life. And we have to, um, we don't have to just complain that things were easier before. We have to, I think there is always a path forward. And, 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 um, and that should be our focus. Well, Rodolf, I'm happy for you that your path has become slightly clearer 
these days and that you've uh, walked through the fire, so to speak. And I appreciate your time with me today. Thanks. Thank you so much. It was um, really a very nice opportunity to have a chance to talk about what is close to my heart. Thank you. I alone produce Brain Inspired. If you value this podcast, consider supporting it through Patreon to access full versions of all the episodes and to join our Discord community. Or if you want to learn more about the intersection of neuroscience and AI, consider signing up for my online course, NeuroAI, The Quest to Explain Intelligence. Go to braininspired.co to learn more. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. You're hearing music by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you. Thank you for your support. See you next time.